Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. We are up now. All right. So, Tucker, I've got bigger issues than you. Um, as you see right now, as a side effect of my diet. been attacked by corn oil. Yeah, but, but worse than that, my, my, I've become a disembodied head. I don't know if you can see. I it. like it actually. My, my, you don't look my, so intimidating now. My, yeah, my body, my head has fallen off my body as a, as a long-term side effect of eating just meat. So I'll let that be known as. A, as a word <laughs> I'm, I'm going to blame it on that chive that ended up on your steak. The chive, the, yeah, the chive I had a couple <laughs> weeks ago caused my head. Oh, to fall chives off. are dangerous. You should know better than that. <laughs> anyway, no, it's kind of. I've got. I've got a. Oh, look at that. I've got a green screen. I forgot to wear a green shirt today, so I wasn't planning very good. <laughs> Hopefully, uh, <laughs> my head didn't actually fall off, guys. I'm still attached. It's just it's just a trick photography. So anyway, uh, Tucker, you were one of our very first guests. I think, Zach, what is he, like the second guest we ever had or something like that? Yeah, I want to say it was episode six or seven, if yeah. you can go back in the catalog. Yeah, uh, so I think yep. it was like him, Peter, and Amber. So he's one of our top earliest guests, and your, 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 pot, your, your episode – sparked a lot of controversy particularly around the you know the sunburn stuff and we don't need to go over that again and don't need to reintroduce you guys that want to know who tucker is is go back and listen to x episode six or seven on hpo and then we can get into that but tucker the reason you know i I thought about having you on is because you know we had gary tabs on uh i don't know a couple weeks ago and and, you know a very good podcast but he said something that you sort of maybe didn't 100 percent agree with and you know gary has very much been a champion of the, you know, why it's the sugar's fault, or what was his book called, the, the case against sugar, and yep. and you know you've sort of you know kind of had a counter argument that probably seed oils may be a more significant health risk issue, and so and then you cited some stuff which I thought was interesting. I didn't realize you know because my thought was you know basically it was you know the the, the corn oil and the cottonseed oil rather the cottonseed oil kind of came into the diet, you know, late 1800s. And you said it might even predated that a little bit or it was more, uh, it was wider spread in the diet than, than I even thought, you know, earlier than I thought it was. I thought it was, you know, something that really didn't really get into the diet that much until, you know, 19, you know, really, I mean, we've seen it dramatically rise. Obviously it's gone up and up and up, but so let's, let's just get into that as, as to the rationale behind why you may or may not think that seed oils are a big driver of problems. Then we can get into specifics as to what problems they may cause. Yeah, well, I, uh, as you're aware, I um, put together a blog post. Thank you, by the way, for asking Todd that question. I think it's, um, you know, I have a, an enormous amount of respect for him. Um, I'm enough of a nerd on these topics so that when I, you know, when I first learned about his book, Good Calories, Bad Calories, which my understanding is his latter books are largely based on, um, everybody warned me that it was dense and a tough read. And I found it to be a page turner. 
and it's certainly been a game changer for the nutritional science business um, in that he called into question a lot of the things that all of us had assumed are true and provided enough evidence to make it a convincing argument. Um, you know, and I, that said, he's been very focused on the carbohydrate and the sugar issues, which are definitely issues. I'm not going to dispute that. Um, when I read Good Calories, Bad Calories 10 years ago, I had been avoiding sugar quite diligently in my diet for about 20 years because of dental issues that I had as a kid, uh, which I think I mentioned before. So I'm a whole, I'm a big fan of the, of the sugars, too much sugar in your diet's a bad thing for you. There's no dispute there. Um, I, I think where he and I basically disagree is what's the effect of that on the diet and what is the more likely driver of the things that we're seeing in the diet. Um, so thanks to you asking that question, he finally, um, laid out his argument contra seed oils, contra my hypothesis. And I put a blog post together a while back, um, shortly after that, you know, I don't want to attack him or come across as, you know, saying he's full of baloney. I just want to address some of the facts that he brought, that he raised, um, all of which are very good questions and very valid concerns. Um, so basically what his points boil down to is when were seed oils introduced in the diet? Um, he made a statement that he didn't think they were very prevalent in the sixties prior to say the sixties or 1940s. Um, he mentioned a couple of populations where he didn't think seed oils were present at all in the diet. Um, yet they got obese. Um, and we can just focus on that and skip some of the other issues with seed oils that we've discussed in the past. Um, he also discussed um, soy and soybean oil consumption in Japan and Crisco versus seed oils, and then China, Japan and sugar intake and seed oils and cardiovascular disease. Um, so we can just, you know, kind of hit those points real quick and then if we want to drill down in any of them, I know you two won't be shy about interrupting me and drilling down on any topics, right? Sure thing. <laughs> okay. Um, so when did seed oils get introduced in the diet? They were the, the primary early seed oil in the United States diet was cottonseed oil, um, which was originally an industrial waste product of cotton production. They didn't know what to do with the seed oils. Um, they started using it as a industrial lubricant and also as a um, lamp oil, right? In the United States, we used to use uh, whale oil for lamps. That's why we hunted whales. So they came up with a better alternative, which was this inedible cottonseed oil. And just, just to make a clear point, cottonseed oil is toxic um, as it comes from the cottonseed plant. It's got a rather nasty fat in it called Gossipol. Um, so then some, they managed to, um, seed oils became enough of a prevalent industry in the United States so that by the 1960s, they, the government started tracking them and adding them into the census data. Um, and around about the same time, they figured out how to detox, detoxify Gossipol, uh, the toxin in seed oils, so that it was, safe for humans to consume, right? 
And I think that's an important point to make that back, you know, lots of people like to get into conspiracy theories about industry forcing us to eat this stuff. They thought they'd solve the problem, right? They had detoxified it and they thought that was the end of the story. Um, seed oil production commenced and became enough of an issue so that a, uh, one of the major lard producers, um, they're apparently trying to corner the lard market. And when they took delivery of lard, they discovered that they had been given 30% more lard than could be accounted for by the production in the United States based on how many pigs there were. And what they realized is that 30% difference was because the producers were cutting their lard with cottonseed oil, hmm. right? Um, which, you know, you still see today in the olive oil market, people use it to cut higher quality fats to boost their profits. Um, this became enough of an issue back then so that they had congressional hearings and they passed a law saying that, you know, lard cut with cottonseed oil had to be identified as compound lard, what they called it, right? So even back in the 1800s, it was a big part of the diet because it was 30% of lard, which was one of the primary cooking fats back then. Um, other countries followed suit and they did in Canada, they did a big assessment of their lard market and they made some rather amusing comments um, that basically every American uh, lard that they received was cut with cottonseed oil. Uh, they said, among the sample of American lards mentioned in the tables, there appear to be only one which is genuine. Generally, the manufacturers in the United States make no pretense of exporting pure lard. The chief adulterant found is cottonseed oil. Um, now, in discussing um, the American Indian diet uh, in Good Calories, Bad Calories, um, Gary Taubes mentions that the Indians were eating, American Indians, so American Indians, as Sean well knows, used to eat basically a paleo diet, right? With, um, well, can't really call it a paleo diet, but more of a Neolithic diet. They'd, they'd raise a lot of corn, but it was basically wild game, vegetables, berries, and corn. Um, when the Plains Indians ate as much buffalo as they could get their hands on and one of the primary reasons that buffalo were wiped out from the plains was to eliminate the plains indians food supply because american soldiers had a real tough time fighting bison powered indians uh they did a lot they were taller they were stronger they were a lot more healthy than american soldiers were um so after the buffaloes were wiped out a lot of these indian tribes were then put into reservations and they were fed the foods that um Hobbs mentions um, the staple of the Sioux diet on the reservation was grease bread, fried in fat and made from white flour. Um, all of these tribes have attempted to maintain their native pattern wherever, whenever possible, but increasingly have depended on items purchased at stores and trading posts. The demand for sugar, coffee, tea, flour, and lard is noted for all of these groups in modern times. Okay, so Lard was the primary fat. Often they were supplied it by the government. Um, they had huge problems with feeding the Indians uh, such that they actually put the Quakers in charge of feeding the Indians because the 
Bureau of Indian Affairs was so inept at it and they had lots of nutritional problems and as Tobbs details, one of the problems they had was obesity early on. Now, what's interesting about this diet that they were eating, um, the diet that they use in lab animals is based on um, lard, right? The modern diet that they use in lab animals is based on lard. And the company that produces it, Research Diets, discovered a few years back that while they thought that the omega-6 fat content in their lard was about 15%, it turned out it was 30%. Well, now you're looking at a diet that's pretty equivalent to what the American Indians would have been eating. A lot of carbohydrates, a lot of you know wheat flour, sugar, everything else, but also probably 30% of their fats were coming as N6 omega-6 fats. Um, so I think there's, you know, the argument that they, the American Indians didn't have access to it back then, you know, the evidence suggests otherwise. Um, now, Gary's defense, I had to do a lot of digging thanks to people who were asking me questions like this on Twitter. And in my blog post, I've got all the original sources describing, you know, the congressional hearings and the Canadian findings of what the fat composition of lard actually was. They weren't doing the sort of analysis that you'd see nowadays, but you know, it was obviously a big enough deal so that they passed laws so that they would accurately disclose which lards were adulterated. Um, Tucker was- Gary also mentions um, South Pacific. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was just going to ask really quick with uh, with uh, the natives diet. Was that the compound Jack, did you say yeah, I was just going to ask, uh, was the lard they were giving the Indians, was that uh, compound lard like you had mentioned earlier? We can only assume. Um, okay. We're going under the assumption that what they were getting was probably lard from the lowest bidder um, because not a lot of priority was put on giving the Indians a healthy diet. Um, and we can assume based on the Canadian experience with exported lard that it was virtually all cut with seed oils at that point. And also uh, the Armour Lard Company's experience that, you know, 30% of the lard that they were getting was cut with seed oils. So I think it's a fairly self safe assumption that they were getting cheap food, right? Um, so Gary then goes on to discuss um, South Pacific. Beg your pardon. Can you gentlemen hear me? Yeah, we can hear you, Tucker. Can I you think you're. Getting, I think you're getting our audio like a couple seconds late, so you'll hear it like two or three seconds after we say it. Okay. Yeah. No, I can hear you. You guys. I just want to make sure that you can hear me as well. Yep. Uh, yeah, I'm getting network issues um, popping up on my screen. Oh, well, darn it, I thought I resolved that. Um, at any rate, so then Gary goes on to mention the South Pacific. Um, that's kind of tough. The South Pacific's a big place. There are lots of um, different populations there and they were eating lots of different diets. Um, I was able to find that there was um, a record in Australia of um, in from 1900, I think it was, where they described their imports from America, and one of their imports was cottonseed oil and also lard. So I think it's safe to say that if it got all the way to Australia, it was 
on the same boats that were supplying um, wheat flour and sugar to the rest of the South Pacific. Um, but, you know, we'd kind of need to get a little more detailed if we're going to drill down on any one population and figure out what sort of foods they were actually eating back then. Um, now, the other um, argument that Gary was making is um, the Japanese. Uh, the Japanese are really interesting because one of the critiques of you know, nutrition science in general is that for a lot of these less developed populations, they had a lot more variables going on than, you know, modern Americans do. They weren't really tracking diets. They were, um, they had a lot of diseases. They had diseases that you don't see, they didn't, you know, that you don't see in the United States. They had, um, they didn't have the hygiene that you see in the United States. So there are a lot more variables going on. Japan's a great, um, case to look at to try and figure out what, why their diet, because their diet was a lot different from ours. Um, right after World War II, it was like 75 to 85% carbohydrates. Um, their sugar consumption went up a lot after World War II. Um, and also their oil consumption went up a lot after World War II. So the early Japanese in the 60s, uh, Japan still today is the least obese um, industrial nation. Um, and the nice, the nice reason to look at the Japanese is because they were a first world country before and after World War II. So they had good hygiene. They didn't have a lot of the problems that some of these less developed countries had. They had, you know, very sophisticated scientific infrastructure and they were putting a lot of effort into nutrition science. Um, it's kind of important to note actually that um, Nutrition science really started around World War II. So when you go back and you look at, say, you know, what were American Indians eating in the late 1800s, nobody was really keeping track, right? Nobody, there's not much data. Even for the United States in general, they didn't really start closely tracking um, the American diet until World War I when we started running out of food. Um, you know, we were... In World War One and World War Two, we had to support a lot of soldiers overseas. So, people here had to go do food rationing. That was actually Ansel Keys. Um, <laughs> aside from his many other sins, he invented the K ration, which I'm sure Sean is familiar with, at least in, from a historical point of view. That was the the Keys ration. It was called the K ration after him. So he came up with a you know prepackaged food that we could give to soldiers. It was uniformly despised by soldiers, but it did get the job done. So he gets a lot of credit for helping get us through World War II. Um, but that was really when nutrition science started because that was when you know, the dietary guidelines were started when they started worrying about, okay, we can't send soldiers overseas to fight for us um, if they're on a malnourishing diet. Um, so Japan's an interesting place to look. They had, you know, unlike America, they had a very high carb diet. Even to this day, they have very low obesity. And we can learn a lot from looking at what changed in their diet since World War II. Um, so now, one of my favorite papers is actually a Japanese paper um, that looks into what changed in the Japanese diet after World War II. And one of the interesting things is that when the Americans came in, they 
made a big push in Japan to get them to consume more seed oils. They actually had trucks going around teaching people how to cook with uh, vegetable oils as opposed to what they used to use back then, which was mostly their own lard production. And this had some negative effects, especially in Okinawa on the Okinawan populations as seed oil production went up. So there's a lot of interesting data from, you know, Japanese scientists looking in Japan on what caused their problems. And even to this day, they claim a lot of their health issues are because of their um, seed oil production. Now, at the same time, their sugar, their sugar um, consumption went up. Um, it stabilized, from the data I've seen, it stabilized in about 1970 at about half of American sugar production or sugar consumption. And even today, it's about half of American sugar consumption. Yet, they have, I think the American obesity rate is close to 30%, Sean. Does that sound right? Yeah, somewhere in there for sure, yeah. Right. So in Japan, it's 3.5%. And they eat half as much sugar as Americans do. Um, Gary, just to jump ahead a little bit, he also talked about China. Chinese are undergoing an obesity and chronic disease epidemic similar to what happened in the United States a few decades ago. Um, I think their children have five times the type two diabetes rate that American children do. Um, and if you look at what changed in the Chi what's changed in the Chinese diet over the last couple of decades, their carbohydrate consumption has gone down, their meat consumption has gone up. Surprisingly, Chinese diet now has fewer carbohydrates and more meat than the American diet does. And I was rather astonished to find that little fact out. Their seed oil consumption has skyrocketed, um, but their sugar consumption is still about one-tenth what the American consumption is. So if you look at China today versus America, you have to go back to about 1840 to find a sugar consumption in the United States that corresponds to what the Chinese consumption is today. So I think, you know, for China, particularly the better explanation, just looking at the gross numbers is that sugar is not the cause of their epidemic because they're just not eating enough sugar for it to be credible. I mean, why, otherwise you wind up having to make the argument, why did the American obesity epidemic start in, 1980 instead of in 1840 when our sugar consumption was at the same level as the Chinese level is now, right? Um, I don't think Gary would make the argument that there's no amount of sugar that won't have an effect. Um, sugar's been in the human diet since long before we were in, we were human. Um, you know, we evolved from fruit eating primates. Um, so at some point there's gotta be a sugar consumption that's safe and doesn't cause disease. And then, you know, looking at his hypothesis at some point, I would imagine at some point you get to a sugar consumption that starts causing harm. And I haven't seen a good explanation of why the Chinese eating 12% of the sugar that we do would be getting the same sugar caused diseases as we do. Um, back to the South Pacific and the Japanese, another interesting point. Um, hey Tucker, let me, let me just, yeah. let me just interject something here because we do see, you know, you, you, because I just wanted to bring this out. You know, when you talk about it, we evolved from, you know, some, you know, a, a fruit eating primate, which, you know, probably is, is accurate. We don't know for sure. But um, we do see that that animals in zoos, in captivity anyway, that are head fed high fruit diets do develop metabolic problems. You know, we've seen obesity problems with 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 uh, 
you know, zoo animals. And so I think, you know, maybe there is a, a limit at some point that's, that's, you know, it's, you know, anyway, I just want to put that, that observation in there. Yeah, no, I, there was um, a news story that went around probably a couple of years ago now about some monkeys in a zoo who were eating a lot of bananas um, and they were getting cavities and diabetes because of the bananas. Um, yeah, I'm, you know, as I said, I've been on a low sugar diet for 30 years. I'm not a huge fan of it. Um, but, you know, we've got to try and figure out at what point does it start it? Does it start causing problems and how does that affect humans? Um, the point I was going to make about the Japanese is, um, the Japanese, when you put them, um, a lot of Japanese moved to Hawaii. Um, when they came to America, they would start getting obese like Americans. So there were a couple of neat papers looking at rates of Japanese heart disease and Japanese um, obesity. You know, the Japanese today are still thin, but when they move to America, they become obese like Americans. So, you know, it's clearly something unique in the American diet that's different from the Japanese diet that is causing obesity, whether Japanese move to America and start eating the American diet, or as happened in Okinawa, we start bringing the American diet over there, they started again getting obese and diabetes and heart disease in fairly short order. Um, but why, you know, what's the level of, um, what's, you know, what I, my question back to Gary would be at what point does sugar become a problem in the human diet, right? Is it the 10% that the Chinese are looking at? Is it the, you know, using the American diet as a baseline? Is it the 10% that the Chinese are eating? Is it the 50% um, that the Japanese are eating? But the Japanese are still not obese. If you look at India, another country that's undergoing an obesity and diabetes epidemic, they have the lowest sugar consumption in the world. So, you know, when, when does this start kicking in and what's the mechanism for it to kick in? Um, I don't want to turn the tables too much because, you know, I'm trying to address his criticisms here, but I think we need to address the problems in the data in both hypotheses. Um, so he made another point about Crisco versus seed oils. Um, Crisco, when Crisco was introduced to the American diet, um, I think the name, if I remember, is basically stands for crystallized cottonseed oil. That's where Crisco comes from. So that was the hydrogenated fat. They figured out that, you know, if you stuffed a polyunsaturated fat, like an omega-6 fat full of hydrogen atoms, it would become a saturated fat and would be more stable. Um, most of the data on the problems with Crisco come from epidemiology and also a scientist called Fred Kummerow, who died recently. Um, he was the guy who really started ringing the bell on um, the dangers of uh, trans fatty acids. Crisco is a trans fatty acid um, and also on seed oils, interestingly enough. Um, that was taken up by everybody's favorite nutritional epidemiologist, Walter Willett at Harvard, who produced the epidemiological evidence that led to trans fats being banned around the world. Um, and a lot of that was, you know, okay, you give um, Crisco to animals and they get sick. Um, problem is Crisco is not 
it's not 100% saturated fat, right? It does, it is made from cottonseed oil, which is pretty high in omega-6 fats. Um, and as far as I know, I've only been able to find one study, um, Peter at the blog, Hyperlipid, looked at this study around the same time I found it and did a great blog post discussing it, which I linked to in my blog post. And so it's a study that looks at the, in rats, on the effect of Crisco versus um, seed oils on the rats. And what's fascinating is the rats get sicker on the seed oils than they do on Crisco. They get rat diabetes and obesity. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's, impor it's important to understand which, and that's the whole point of this discussion, it's important to understand which factors are the causal factors, because we don't want to do as we did with a low-fat diet and go charging down the wrong avenue, thinking that we've got good data, when then discovering 20 years, oh, whoops, we missed it again. Um, so the animal data is, you know, the one study <laughs> is that Crisco is actually the healthy version of seed oils, which I found pretty surprising. Um, Kumaro himself wrote an essay called My Diet. Um, Walter Willett wrote part of the introduction to that um, because he was one of the premier nutrition scientists in America and he was 100 years old. The obvious question is, what does this guy eat, right? So what he says is, we all need to limit consumption of foods cooked in overheated and overused oils. Keep omega-6, omega-3 ratios in balance. And then addressing Willett's research, he says, reducing saturated fats and increasing polyunsaturated fats will increase the level of omega-6 fatty acids, creating an unhealthy balance in omega-6, omega-3 ratios. Um, so, you know, there's the expert's view on what he ate himself. Um, interesting. Um, I've never seen Willett address that comment, even though I'm sure he read it. Because uh, as I said, he did write part of the introduction for that article. Um, and I haven't heard Gary address it either. Um, but you know, it'd be interesting. By the way, hyperlipids summary of that study that I was discussing a moment ago about Crisco versus seed oils is question, if you're in a position of power over innocent folks who are trying to eat healthy food, which fat would you ban? Answer, the wrong one. And I think <laughs> we have the danger of making the same mistake again, which is, you know, basing it on epidemiological evidence, saying, you know, epidemiological evidence has got an amazing track record of being wrong when it comes to predicting, um, in the nutrition sphere anyway, disease causes. Um, I think their record at the moment is zero out of 54 times they've been right. That's 100% wrong. So, you know, let's, let's try and be a little more careful this time and get it right. Um, now, you know, I've discussed, I think, Gary's um, points about China and Japan um, and their sugar consumption. Um, I've got some links to, you know, the data on my blog post. Um, and also some links to what's happened to seed oil consumption in Asia over the last few decades. It's skyrocketed, even in the countries with low sugar consumption. Um, there's another interesting point. There's an animal model. So one of, the, one of the big questions I think that you have to ask when you're looking at Japan is, you know, the Japanese diet's been Amer Americanized. 
they call it that, or westernized um, for ever since right after World War II. Um, why are they not getting obese? Um, and why are the Chinese getting obese? Um, they're very similar genetically. Um, there's a genetic marker for called the ALDH2 uh, asterisk 2 gene, which is very common in both the Japanese and the Chinese, uh, which affects their susceptibility to a Western diet, um, which, you know, points to their genetic similarity. Um, obviously, culturally, they're very different. So why are these two populations, why is one of them the least obese industrial society and the others becoming one of the most in obese industrial societies? Um, there's a uh, American scientist um, who's done a lot of research into um, seed oils over the last few years. And they did a fascinating study looking at seed oil inducing obesity in rats. And what they discovered is that if you give the amount of seed oils that you feed to these rats controlled how fast they got obese, unless they were given a lot of DHA, right? DHA is the fat in fish oil, the omega-3 fat. So if you gave them DHA, it protected against the obesity induced inducing effects of omega-6 fats. Now, what's one of the big dietary differences between Japan and the rest of the world and the Japanese and the Chinese is obviously that the Japanese eat more fish than probably any other big society, certainly any other industrial society on earth. And that may be why even today they have, you know, a three and a half percent obesity rate instead of a 30% obesity rate. That's kind of a hypothesis on my part, but it would, it correlates with the animal research that we have. And it also explains their difference from Chinese who are right across the sea of Japan and are, you know, getting quite obese. Um, that'll make sense. Hey folks, human performance outliers podcast is growing. And due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, Tucker, yeah, it's, a, it's a, uh, obviously a lengthy topic, you know, and it's stuff I've certainly seen and, and, and you know, largely agree with. Um, let me just ask you about the, uh, you know, we've got, so it was an interesting discussion we had a couple of weeks ago with Amber O'Hearn talking about this omega-3, omega-6 ratio and where that comes from. And, you know, my understanding is that it came from observing certain populations than wild animals and seeing, you know, what might be the optimal ratio, you know, and then again, whenever we, whenever people tell me about optimal ratios or optimal lab values, I always sort of kind of bite my tongue a little bit because I just, I just don't know that we have the data to show that, but you know, her, her, she posited the fact that, you know, we've got these Inuit that reportedly were disease free. I mean, that's, you know, if you listen to the vegans, they'll, they'll debate that. But I mean, in general, most people accept these people had low risk of diabetes low rates of heart disease, low rates of cancer. And they were noted to eat, you know, a diet that was rich in omega-3, at least anyway, many of them did. Many of them were coastal that had access to seal, you know, you know, sea mammals and, and seafood particularly. Right. They and very had little low, wheat flour. 
yeah, and they had very, very low rates of these diseases. And, and also, similarly, the ones that dined on wild caribou also had that. And, and as much as we like to promote grass-fed animals, the, the omega-3 content is not that high relative to seafood. Seafood clearly is going to give you a bigger punch if you, you think that. But, you know, the, the question may be just maybe because they were dining on a diet that was a devoid of, you know, the refined carbohydrates, the sugars, that the omega-3 to omega-6 ratio wasn't as important in that population. And, it, and it's just that, you know, we assume it is, you know, because we see the same thing. You know, we have, we have coastal Inuit and we have inland Inuit basically with similar health, uh, you know, or disease, lack of disease prevalence. Uh, and, and, the, and the common denominator is they're not eating the refined stuff. And that you, maybe there's a baseline amount of omega-3 you need and it's not that high. Just like your argument is maybe there's some level of sugar and it's not, you know, it, it depends where we go. So the, that's the question is, you know, we have these people saying we all have to eat, you know, omega-3, omega-6 index has to be, you know, whatever it is. And, I, and it varies on who you listen to. It's four to one, two to one, something like that. Any thoughts so, on that, that particular uh, line, of re, line of thought? Yeah, it's a good, you know, Amber's a very smart person and I have a lot of respect for her. Um, she, the, where it comes from, um, the first guy that I'm aware of who looked into the omega-6, omega-3 ratio, um, I mean, you know, Weston, Weston Price mentioned that um, that was actually another point that Gary made was, you know, he talked about some of Weston Price's findings. And I think that Weston Price's findings, so far as they go, are pretty good. He seemed to be a pretty careful observer of people. One of the things that Weston Price mentioned in the package of foods that seemed to cause disease was vegetable fats. Um, so the guy who really started looking into it was an American researcher, um, William Lands, who since he retired goes by the name of Bill Lands. And he and another scientist named Harris came up with this idea of um, omega-6 and omega-3 fat ratios, looking at populations like the Inuit and the Greenland Eskimos and the Japanese. And um, he worked with the paper I mentioned before, looking at the Okinawans. Uh, he worked with that scientist. Um, so, you know, they wrote a couple of papers together. So all these guys were talking to each other. Um, so his observation was primarily about heart disease that, you know, the, and he came up, uh, the omega-6, omega-3 ratio that you can go get done on you, the omega index, I think it's called, basically looks at the longer chain omega-6 fats like DHA in your, uh, I think it's in your red blood cells. Um, and what he found was that had a pretty clear, close correlation to heart disease um, across different populations that the higher your omega-6 and the lower your omega-3 was, the worse your chances for heart disease were. Um, Lands studied uh, omega-6 fat metabolism in the body. Um, he looked at how omega-6 fats turn into prostaglandins and other chemicals in the body that influence the inflammatory state. Um, by the way, one of his favorite quotes, um, he said, I've looked at saturated fats for 50 years and I've never found a mechanism by which they kill people. Um, and after he retired, he focused a lot on this. He has a really neat website um, where he has 
you know, he looks at the USDA database and tells you how much omega-6 fats different foods contain. So he looked, you know, he started off by looking at healthy populations with low CVD or cardiovascular disease risk, like the Japanese and the Inuit and the Greenland Eskimos. And um, I think based on that, um, the guys who started off with the, well, let me rephrase that. I know based on that, because they wrote a paper together, um, the guys who came up with the paleo diet idea, Lauren Cordain and his colleague, whose name escapes me right at the moment, um, they tried to figure out what's the natural, and I hate to use the term natural, but what's, what's called the expected omega-6, omega-3 ratio. So they went to Africa and looked at what are the omega-6 and omega-3 fatty acid ratios in wild game animals, right? And just on the assumption that that's what we evolved to eat, so that's probably the healthy ratios. Um, most of those animals have pretty low tissue composition of omega-3 and omega-6 fats um, compared to something like a grain-fed pig or a modern American. Um, and the ratio tends to be in the one to one or, you know, one to three, one to four ratio. Um, one of those researchers, uh, Christopher Ramsden, who did the, some of the animal experience, experiments showing omega-6 induces obesity in animals, um, he kind of did, a, he did, he started moving on to human experiments looking at this question. And what he discovered is that if you lower the omega-6 fat, content in a human's diet, it actually makes the omega-3 fats more bioavailable. There seems to be some collateral damage between the two fats in the system. Um, he didn't really get into the details of why that happens, but it's a pretty fascinating finding, which suggests that if you're eating, say, a beef diet and you cut your omega-6 fats way back because cattle don't have much omega-6 fats, regardless of what you feed them, um, ruminants in general they just don't uptake those fats into their body. Um, that the omega-6, the omega-3 ratio is probably gonna be a lot less important because it's more bioavailable in your body. Um, now that's compared to, you know, so okay, so let's just assume that that study is gonna be replicated at some point and that omega-6 fats have some collateral damage to omega-3 fats. So compare the, you know, paleo ratio to the modern American ratio. The modern American ratio is like one to seven to one to 20 parts omega-3 to omega-6. So we're way off the end of that spectrum. Tucker. Uh, um, yes, yeah, no, it's been uh, really informative. And I just had, uh, like you, I've been kind of thinking about just uh, kind of the, the timeline of nutritional advice or supplementation advice that I've heard throughout the years. And I remember, and I'm sure you do as well, a few years ago, there was kind of a big push to do like these macro dosings of omega-3 supplementation as a way to like, I guess, you know, be heart healthy or protective or something like that. <clears throat> and uh, I remember I was listening to a podcast, I can't remember which one it was, but the, the guest was asked about that, about, you know, this, these like absurd numbers of like omega-3 supplementation protocols. And he like paused for a second and then said, it, you, you could potentially do that, but we don't necessarily know what kind of effect that will have. And it should be much easier just to get those ratios by lowering the one that's already artificially high, the omega-6, 
so you don't have a need to be taking like 20, 30 capsules of omega-3 fish oil every day. <laughs> and uh, I thought that made a lot of sense. I was like, yeah, you know, it not, not only is it more practical, but it's much more affordable by just rearranging your grocery list as opposed to, you know, buying a, a package of omega-3 supplements every other day. Uh, but it, it's just interesting to kind of hear your description of how some of these diets cross different countries and different groups of people, you know, may have had some of those aspects put in there. Like when you talk about the fish being some of our highest uh, animal-based omega-3 sources, and then the beef being really low, but it, it kind of doesn't need to be high because it's not trying to counteract. Uh, is that kind of what you were saying about Japan earlier then too, was they ate enough fish where even if they did have a slightly higher than normal omega-6 or omega-6 in their diet, they counteracted it a little bit with uh, the omega-3 ratios being higher than average or at least higher than China? Uh, short answer, yes. <laughs> you totally nailed it there. Um, slightly longer answer because you raised a lot of different points in there. You know, it's important to remember that you want to get enough polyunsaturated fats. You don't want, you don't need to megadose on it. I mean, it's not like, you know, I always use the example of water. Just because X amount of water is good for you doesn't mean that 20X times that much water is better for you. Um, you need what your body requires. Um, hey, Tucker, let me, let me interject here just because I think you'll find this fascinating. We had a guest on here, Molly Schuyler. I don't know if you listened to that show. She's oh, a competitive yes. eater, right? And so what her latest, I don't know if you saw what her latest competitive challenge was. She drank two gallons of canola oil in oh. a minute and six seconds. So I'm just fascinated with <laughs> what the effect of two gallons of canola oil would be on the body at that point. That, that's got to be, I'm sure it terrifies you, but... <laughs> Well, I, you know, it's important to remember this stuff, it's the problem with this stuff is over the long term, right? I mean, intestinal issues aside, and I know, if, <laughs> you know, I'd be on the can for days if I did something like that. I'd be interested to hear what her experience was after the fact, because um, even that much of any fat's probably going to make your intestines unhappy. Um, yeah, that was, I saw that on Twitter. That was, that was pretty alarming. <laughs> Um, but you know, to Zach's point, you, you want to get enough, right? I mean, I often call beef the only superfood, right? Cause beef seems to be the only thing that you can eat nothing but beef and be in excellent health. And I think, you know, when people ask me, well, what's the right amount, how do we know from our environment, what the right am amount of polyunsaturated fats is? I say, well, just look at beef. How much does it have? Right. I mean, people can eat beef for decades and be perfectly healthy. So that's got to be about the right amount. And it's, you know, one to one, one to three in that range um, for grass-fed beef. Um, but it's got very little fat of these polyunsaturated fats in it, like a couple percentage points, right? To Zach's point, um, you know, I actually started off by, uh, when I started trying to fix my diet, I started off by taking um, fish oil tablets or capsules. That was, that was the first thing that I did. There was this fascinating study from, boy, probably 12 years ago now um, that's been replicated a couple of times. Um, and what they did was they looked at different prison populations who obviously have problems with aggression and violent behavior. You know, they're in prison. Um, and they looked at their diet and they realized it was a pretty lousy diet. So they started supplementing them with omega-3 fats and their aggressive behavior went down pretty dramatically, right? 
So you look at the Japanese, yes, they don't get obese and maybe that's because of their fish consumption, um, but they do get other problems that have been linked with consumption of these fats. They get, you know, what they call the Western cancers um, and, you know, their heart disease rate has gone up dramatically over the last, since World War II. Um, heart disease used to be virtually unheard of in Japan and now it's probably half the American rate. Um, so, and the other interesting point, Zach, and I'm sure um, Amber probably brought this up, is the Inuit have a genetic mutation that affects how they process fats. Um, and I won't go into the details of that, but some of the scientists, we don't exactly know why they have it or exactly what the effect is, but there's been some speculation that the reason they have this fat that this adaptation is because they're eating so much omega-3 fats um, and that too much is you know, not good for you like every other nutrient. And that's why they developed this, that there's some survival benefit. Um, there's also looking at the Japanese, you know, similarly, they tend to, they have a high stroke rate over there. Um, and there's some speculation that that's because of the effects of excess omega-3 fats in their diet. Um, so yeah, I'm not a big fan, you know, to the beginning of Zach's point, I'm a fan of getting things down into the correct range and not trying to compensate for too much of something that's bad because you're eating too much of it with too much of something else that you think is going to be good for it. I think it's kind of counterproductive and we don't know what all, you know, a lot of this stuff is not incredibly well studied and we don't know what the secondary effects are going to be. But certainly I would say the Japanese example is that, you know, eating lots of fish seems to protect them against some of the, some of what we think these fats do, but it doesn't protect them from everything. Yeah, I mean, that's a, I mean, just your general point uh, I like about the fact that we're, you know, rather than trying to overcompensate with the, with the supplementation and, you know, you know, just going out of your way to, to do something because it seems to have a benefit in some cases, you know, can, can, can lead to secondary problems. And I, and I, I think that information about the hemorrhagic stroke in Japanese, and I think it's a hemorrhagic stroke, if I'm not mistaken, rather than an atherosclerotic version, uh, is which is, for the listeners means you're, you're bleeding, your you're bleeding, spraying a leak. Yeah, you're bleeding in your brain rather than, than than clogging up your brain, which is which is what some people otherwise would do. Right. I mean that's 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 very fascinating. Um, let's get into because you know the epidemiology. You know we we can talk forever on epidemiology, and you and I both know in the end of the day, it's really not that helpful. I mean it, you know it, it 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 leads us to hypothesis, and we can generate. So let's have the hypothesis that. We've got enough data to, to generate the hypothesis that, that seed oils are potentially problematic in the human diet. So let's get a little bit into the, the, the mechanism, that, and you've been very good at pointing out a lot of studies mechanistically about what's going on when we consume these omega-6 fats, what happens to them in the body, whether it's oxidation, whether it's you know, glycol, you know, glycosylation, or, or what, what's going on with these, these oils, and why specifically do we think they might be problematic, and, and then we can kind of see how that may affect us from a you know, overall pathophysiology and disease process. Okay, great. Um, one point I want to make about the epidemiology, um, you know, is I think the timeline of omega-6 getting into the diet makes clear. If you're an epidemiologist, you are going to have to go out into the middle of the Amazon jungle to find populations that aren't eating seed oils, right? 
And if we're assuming that the appropriate level of seed oils or, you know, omega-6 fats in the diet is a lot lower than what we're eating and basically a lot lower than what any industrial country is looking, to get some good epidemiological data, you're going to have to go find somebody like a tribe like the Tsamani out who live in the Bolivian uh, Amazonian jungle and look at what they're eating and look at their health effects, right? You can't just compare, you know, America to Canada or America to Japan or America to China or any of these other countries that are already, you know, seed oils got into the diet 50, 60, 70 years before epidemiolo nutritional epidemiolo epidemiology was even a science. So you've got a major confounder there. Um, so yeah, what are the effects? I think the two most important um, effects, we can start with obesity because that's the most interesting one um, from a mechanistic standpoint, because it was really quite surprising when I started looking into this. Um, and then we can talk about some of the other health issues and why these may be problematic. Um, so the study, the study I mentioned before in rodents, um, the lead scientist was a guy, Christopher Ramsden, and the scientist who did the work was this uh, woman, Anita Alfheim. And so what they did, there's a drug that used to be used to treat obesity called uh, Ramonabon. Um, Sean, you may have heard of this. Um, it was yanked off the market, I think, in 2006. It was accepted in the EU, um, but never in the United States to treat obesity. It's, in rodents, it's like a miracle drug. You give them, you know, you put them on a fatty, uh, what they call a Western diet, a diet that induces obesity. You give them this drug and they don't get any of the effects, right? So it's amazing. Then they gave it to humans and it had similar effects, you know, fat content goes down, you know, everything just gets better. Uh, the problem is it has a rather nasty side effect that apparently makes people want to kill themselves. Um, so hence it was yanked off the market appropriately. So, so what Alfheim and Ramsden did is they looked into why Ramonaband had the effect that it has in animals. Um, and it turns out that if you feed uh, rats seed oils, um, one of the things that happens in the body is the linoleic acid, which is the fat that's in those jars of, uh, did you put those up there to trigger me, Sean? I'm <laughs> looking at Sean's head floating next to two bottles of corn oil. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in corn oil, the main omega-6 fat is linoleic acid. If you feed these rats linoleic acid, it turns into another fat in the body called arachidonic acid. Um, arachidonic acid is another natural omega-6 fat. In the diet, it's mostly found in meats. And, you know, again, in the right amount, it's very healthy for us. Um, babies need lots of arachidonic acid when they're growing. Uh, it's a good thing. So this appears to be another case of too much of a good thing. So when you feed these rats arachidonic or linoleic acid, it turns into arachidonic acid, which goes in and gets converted into other things in the body. One of the things that it gets turned into is a chemical called two, uh, let me see if I can get this right, two arachidon oil, I think that's it. Anyway, the uh, abbreviation is 2-AG, 2-AG. So what does 2-AG do to you? 
Um, well, it turns out that we know a lot about what 2AG does to you because 2AG is the human version of the chemical THC in mar marijuana, right? THC works in your body because it has the same effect as 2AG does, right? And now I'm sure nobody present has ever gotten stoned, but one of the things that my friends who have tell me is that you tend to get the munchies, right? You want to go eat a candy bar or whatever. From what I understand about the munchies, almost nobody wants to go eat a steak. They want to go eat junk food when they get the munchies, right? Um, so they've done some neat animal experiments where they take a rat and they feed it until it stops eating. And then they inject THC or 2-AG into its brain and it starts eating again. So what the chemical is, it's a signal to your body that it's starving and that it should eat if it's got food available, right? Um, which is why people get the munchies because they, you know, they smoke a joint and they get THC in their brain and it says, you're hungry, eat, right? Um, so what Ramsden and Alfheim's experiment did is they linked this to the diet. They feed them more seed oils, the arachidonic acid content in the body goes up, the 2-AG level in the brain goes up and the rats start eating and they overeat and they crave specifically sugar and carbohydrates. That's what they wanna eat. Now this Ramonabant drug, that's what it blocks. It blocks the brain's uptake of 2-AG or THC into the brain, thereby preventing the obesity-inducing feeding intake, right? So that's a fairly fascinating pathway, which I think explains the obesogenic effects of um, seed oils. It also ties into uh, Stefan Guillenet's research, right? Because this is a food reward pathway. 2-AG also blocks about 50% of the um, effect of cocaine on the brain because it also triggers the same pathway, right? So we're looking at, you know, it's a, it's a clear chem chemical pathway. Um, there's some other more recent research where since nobody's taking Ramonabant anymore, they're trying to figure out another way to do this same, you know, the same effect. Um, there's another scientist whose name escapes me right now. Um, who followed up with Alfheim's and Ramsden's research and he came up he used a blocker that blocked uh, 2-AG in the stomach and found, again, that linoleic acid triggers, specifically linoleic acid more than any other fat, triggers rats to eat through a mechanism going directly from their stomach to their brain. And if you block that by cutting the nerve, they don't get the same effect. So there's your food reward effect of the Western diet in a nutshell. And if you give them either Ramonabant or this newer drug that's designed to only block the 2-AG pathway in the gut, they don't get obese, right? So that's one pathway. Um, the other effect, you know, to get back to our sunburn discussion from the last time I was here is when you eat, you know, the fatty app is, the fatty the fat composition of your body is largely controlled by how much fats you eat, right? There are regulators for certain parts of it, but a lot of it's just, what are you eating? Um, so when you, so let's take the um, sunburn mechanism and look at that. When you eat 
more seed oils, your tissues become replete with linoleic acid and omega-6 fats. They're very susceptible to oxidation. When they oxidize, they break down into toxins. Um, and toxin isn't the, I'm not being hyperbolic there. That's how they're described in Wikipedia. Um, when they break down, uh, one of the best studied one is a toxin called HNE. HNE is a causes protein damage. I found a study recently that said about 20% of the proteins in your cells are damaged by HNE. It causes DNA damage. Um, the, one of the primary genetic markers for what they call the Western cancers is a P53 gene, which controls um, your body's response, your body's immune response to cancer. HNE preferentially, and preferentially is the word they use in the studies, preferentially mutates this gene. So it basically breaks your cancer protection system. Um, HNE also, uh, seed oils concentrate in your mitochondria when they get oxidized there through hyperglycemia or just, you know, through the normal course of operations. HNE breaks out into the mitochondria and causes mitochondrial damage. Um, there's another great study, which has been my pinned tweet on Twitter for long, for way too long, that took a bunch of rats and they fed them, you know, the typical rat chow, which is high carbohydrate. And then they gave them half the rats uh, seed oils, and then they made half of each branch diabetic. And just giving the rats seed oils made them obese and diabetic. Rats get a slightly different diabetes than people do. Um, so then they went to the next step to give the rats the human model of diabetes. You have to give rats this toxin that damages their pancreas. And that causes them to get uh, hyperglycemia like a human would in diabetes. Um, hyperglycemia made the seed oils break down even further and gave them heart failure and mitochondrial dysfunction on the order of their mitochondria basically collapsed. So, so I'm sure Sean's well aware heart failure is one of the biggest problems in industrialized nations now. And we have a clear animal model for how to induce it, right? Um, there's, you know, looking at um, one of the best markers for, you know, getting back to Gary, Gary brought up some questions about um, cardiovascular disease. Um, the populations that we know of that don't have any or virtually no cardiovascular disease are all primitive populations like the Samana Indians or the Catavans in the South Pacific, or um, oh, there's another group in the South Pacific uh, whose name escapes me at the moment. Um, they have virtually no heart disease. Um, they don't get diabetes. They don't get obese. Their heart, their uh, blood pressure doesn't go up as they get older, and none of them eat any seed oils. That's not, you know, that doesn't prove it, but it's a pretty good indicator that, you know, something noticeable about it. Some people will say, oh, it's genetic, but if you put them, you know, if you take a Catavan out of off the islands and put them in a regular city and feed them Western foods, he gets all the same disease all the rest of us do. Um, they flipped it to Japanese back in the 1960s, the Japanese, the Koreans, and the Nigerians. They did a fantastic study um, comparing cardiovascular disease rates between um, Japanese in America, J Japanese in Japan, same for Koreans, and the same for African Americans and Nigerians. And 
you know, the, we know from the Japanese example, so we'll focus on them, that they were not eating much in the air, not eating much seed oils back then because we were just in the beginning of introducing it into their diet. And they had virtually zero, uh, virtually zero heart disease rates. Um, and this was, um, they did this with autopsies. So, you know, as Sean will know, there are, just because you have a heart attack doesn't mean you're dead, but it does damage to the heart. And they can look at, you can look at a heart in an autopsy and know that the guy had a heart attack at some point because it's got a typical pattern of damage. So what they did is they did, they went to, um, aut they went and looked at people who were dying and did autopsies on the hearts to figure out what their actual heart disease rate was, which gets around a lot of the problems with those older studies where, you know, different doctors had, you know, different countries had different definitions of heart disease and different criteria for evaluating it. Well, he took all the hearts back to a lab in Albany and had one guy do all the evaluations to figure out what their heart, to, what their heart attack rate actually was. In Nigeria, it was zero. And in Japan and Korea, it was close to zero. Um, you know, those are all populations where their heart disease rates been going up in the latter half of the 20th century. And where their seed oil intake's been going up. Um, so seed oils um, cause, um, you know, we all hear a lot about LDL in uh, heart disease. That's what statins do is they, you know, lower your LDL. Um, when they first figured out the guys who got the Nobel Prize for discovering the LDL receptor were two scientists called Brown and Goldstein. And the first thing they did after discovering the LDL receptor was trying to induce the first stage of atherosclerosis, which is turning macrophages, which are a type of white blood cell, into what's called a foam cell, which is this cell that's stuffed full of fat um, that turns into the plaque that you see in atherosclerosis. Um, so they said, okay, great, we'll give them, you know, we'll put the macrophages in a vial full of LDL and they'll all become macrophage and they'll all become foam cells. Problem is it didn't work. Um, so then they started, they created what they called modified LDL because they realized that there was something that had to happen LDL, to LDL to make it pro-atherogenic, to make it start off that process. Um, Two other scientists, uh, Steinberg and Whitstam, figured out exactly what it was. They figured out that um, what happens in the LDL is the polyunsaturated omega-6 fats get oxidized and they turn into this chemical HNE, which I was talked about before. Um, and that kicks off the macrophages to start gobbling up these oxidized LDLs um, and kick off the process of atherosclerosis. Steinberg and Whitstam followed up with some dietary studies, first in rabbits and then in humans, where they fed them all the, either uh, olive oil, which doesn't have much omega-6 fats, or some seed oil. And then they tried to oxidize their LDL, and they discovered that you know, seed oil intake in the diet was required to uh, have these pro-atherogenic LDL. Um, then they... Uh, Next, they did it in humans. There have been three or four different studies that I've seen that look at the dietary fatty acid effect on LDL. And, you know, what happens is the omega-6 fats in the LDL get oxidized, turn into these toxins, 
and that's what kicks off the problems. Native LDL doesn't seem to be problematic. Um, now, what's interesting about that is statins actually are protective against that oxidation pro process, which is probably why they work. They also do lower LDL, and if you have less LDL around to get oxidized, then maybe that's part of the benefit that they have. But my point of view, I would rather address the root cause, which you know I think for cardiovascular disease in particular, the evidence is pretty overwhelming that you know oxidized LDL is required. It's also a phenomenal indicator of risk in people of what their future heart disease um, risk is going to be, even if they don't currently have heart disease. Um, a lot of the common indicators that doctors will look at in um, trying to assess your heart disease risk, CRP, C-reactive protein, which is a protein that um, uh, reflects the inflammatory state in the body. What does that do? CRP protein is a protein that binds to oxidized LDL, to the oxidized omega-6 fats in your blood. Um, and it's a signal for the macrophages to clean it out, right? And the problem there seems to be that, you know, if you're constantly eating this stuff, you're constantly generating more and more of this stuff in your body and your body can't ever clean it out. Um, so while you'll never find a cardiologist who will understand exactly what CRP is doing, they will all say, oh, it's an indicator of inflammation. Well, it's an indicator of omega-6 fat oxidation in your blood. That's what it does, right? Um, Tucker, let me just interject here because, you know, we're talking about oxidation. Um, what role do you think, because we know that, you know, in a lot of things cause oxidation. I mean, breathing causes oxidation. I mean, let's, I mean, let's just be clear. But, I mean, there are dietary patterns, and we see, and, and Zach is well aware of this, having done some of these experiments with oxidation that occurs uh, with exercise based on a high carb and likely without exercise too, high carbohydrate diet versus a low carbohydrate diet. So do you think the combination of high omega-6 intake plus a oxidatively more stressful diet, i.e. Uh, a high carbohydrate diet may, may combine to, to, to accelerate this process? Well, that, that is a fabulous point, um, Sean. Because one of the things that you do when you train your body is you train your body to become better at dealing with oxidative stress and oxidative damage. That's one of the major benefits of exercise. And if you take athletes, if you take fit athletes versus unfit athletes, a fit athlete is far better at dealing with the oxidative damage that happens when you're exercising. Because what are you doing when you're exercising? You're breathing hard, right? Your body is ramping up energy production and creating a lot more oxidative stress, which is primarily oxidizing these fats in your body. Um, and that's a normal process. And therefore, it also upregulates the systems that your body has to deal with these processes, right? So, yeah, I think, you know, without a doubt, I don't, th I don't think exercise is a problem. Exercise induces it, but it also upregulates the fix. Um, so, which is probably why we see, you know, runners have half the rates of all the diseases that are associated with oxidative stress as people who aren't active or who aren't as active, is that they are building up the system that the body uses to protect from this process. And that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's a great point. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, like I said, there's comp compensatory mechanisms for all this stuff. And, you know, like I said, I mean, in general, I mean, you know, just to say we shouldn't be eating processed food and donuts, which are both high in carbohydrate and often high in, in, in these seed oils, and we should be exercising. I mean, that, that seems like common sense. But when you look at mechanistically what's happening, and particularly with the oxidation around the seed oils, you know, we, we kind of can maybe understand why this, why this makes sense. And we kind of piece that together. I'm, I always... As a general rule, I tend to, to, to like to look at results and, and then, you know, then you can kind of reverse engineer it, you know, rather what we often will do is we'll, we'll get a little biochemic, biochemistry knowledge and we'll make predictions based on that or even recommendations. And then in practice, they don't end up being true. So I think it's, it's better to look at the results people are having and then, and then let's, let's try to reverse engineer this stuff. But yeah, let's, but go on, it's continuing. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's, that's, you know, it's one of the interesting things. One of the things that happens to runners, um, one of the only negative things that happens to runners other than, you know, tripping and banging your head on a rock or whatever else you might do when you're out on the trail is um, they tend to get atrial fibrillation, right? Um, atrial fibrillation for everybody listening is basically you get heart damage and your heart's unable to beat regularly, right? It's not the pretty sine wave that you want to see on your uh, EKG when you go to the doctor's office. You get this erratic thing because your heart, the electrical signal in your heart isn't working and your heart muscles aren't working. Yeah, I mean, your atrium is no longer contracting. It's kind of quivering. And so it, it's, it becomes right. ineffective at pumping blood through and then you're at risk for blood clots because you have some stasis occurring. And so... Right. Yeah, that is, so, that well, is. Yeah, that's associated with with. I've seen that associated with uh, chronic endurance exercise, and I've also seen, I think, some recent studies out there, at least epidemiologically, associating with low carbohydrate diets. I mean, that was another thing that's come out recently. I don't know if you saw that. I think it was it was right. either atrial fibrillation or it might have been. I think it was just atrial fibrillation, but it might have been arrhythmias in general. But anyway, right. So, so why might that happen? Um, from the reading I've done on that, and I've done a fair bit on it because my dad's got AFib um, and has been treated for that for 25 years. Um, it seems to be what they, what, you know, if you read these studies, they talk about a pathological remodeling of the heart, right? The heart becomes, uh, gets damage to the muscles um, and it gets fibrosis. Um, fibrosis is something that you see late stage in lots of these metabolic syndrome related diseases. Um, fibrosis is late stage in, uh, you know, cirrhosis of the liver is basically defined by the presence of fibrosis. Um, so in an AFib heart, you get also a lot of fibrosis. Um, from what I've seen, the mechanism inducing fibrosis is the breakdown of these omega-6 fats into HNE. Um, it induces the body to create these, uh, to create fibrosis. It affects how the body processes um, collagen. Um, you know, so that's one pathway. I've never seen it demonstrated, but, you know, given what happened to those rats in uh, the study where they were fed seed, oil, fed seed oils and then made um, diabetic, if you take a person like a runner who were famously, eat, you know, Zach will attest to this, runners famously eat crappy diets because they figure running is going to protect them from 
heart disease. Yeah, so I was like, actually I was actually just gonna say that like <laughs> I would I bet I bet the majority of people one of the reasons they're running as much as they are is to 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 justify what they're eating. So yeah. then you have to it's ask like is a cart before the horse type of thing. I think in a lot of cases, especially with some of these these real chronic issues. Right, right. So yeah, so if you you know, if I were going to do an experiment with people and try to give them atrial fibrillation, what I would do, knowing the mechanisms I know, is feed them seed oils, give them a lot of carbohydrates because that effect is, you know, the worst, and then run them on a treadmill to pump up their oxidative stress, right? Because that's going to stimulate the production of uh, the react the uh, oxidation in their mitochondria, which is where all this stuff starts, stimulate the breakdown of the omega-6 fats. It'll produce a lot of H&E and that will induce the fibrosis. That's exactly how I would tell you to do it. Um, so yeah, I was, you know, when I first started, saw that study saying that runners have higher levels of AFib, I was a little surprised. And then when I started drilling down into the mechanisms behind what seems to cause AFib, you know, the fibrosis mechanism is clear. I mean, the papers I've seen say HNE induces fibrosis. Um, so yeah, that's, you know, I don't know if you'd ever get that study past the IRB, but uh, that's definitely how I would propose to design it. You know? Yeah. You know, the only other thing I've ever considered as being a contributing factor to that is just, uh, it seems like a lot of these popular distances that people are training for are kind of this gray area of pacing where it's like, it's too fast to be considered like a long subsistent hunt type of pace, but it's, um, it's, it's too slow to be just like an all out sprint to the point where you're done really, really quickly, like in less than a minute. And it, it I've, I've always just suspected if that's just kind of a weird like situation to be putting a human body in. Well, and there's that. And there's also, I don't know about that. I mean, that's a whole nother discussion. You know, what paces are, did we evolve to run? Um, but they did a great study a few years back up at the Boston Marathon, and they looked at um, they looked at the runners, and they looked at markers of heart damage. I think troponin was one of the ones they used, which is a marker of muscle damage in the heart. Um, and what they found was that runners who trained more than 45 miles an hour a week didn't get any heart damage. Um, runners who trained less than 45 miles a week had these markers of heart damage. Now this is, by the way, short-term damage. It's like, you know, if you go to the gym and you lift too much weights, your muscles are going to be sore. It's the same sort of thing. Um, but I, you know, to Zach's point, you know, a lot of, a lot of recreational runners, 45 miles a week is pretty good. If you're a recreational runner, that's a fair bit of running. That's, you're a pretty hardcore runner if you're able to get in 45 miles a week, especially if you're not going all that fast. I mean, for Zach, it's probably like, you know, before breakfast every day, but <laughs> for us mortals, that's, that's a solid week of training. So I think that's another factor that, you know, they're, they're causing a lot of damage. They're clearly causing heart short-term heart damage. It's not long-term heart damage and the heart does repair and get stronger from it. So, you know, don't not run because of that. Um, but they also haven't upregulated their systems to deal with oxidative stress as much as a really fit guy will have. So there are a bunch of little factors that are going to, you know, push you in that direction. 
even though nobody should come away from this podcast thinking, oh my God, I can't run. It's bad for my heart. I mean, running is, all the evidence we have is that running is the best thing you can do for your heart. Just, you know, don't go crazy. And don't, if you're not fit, don't try to set the world record. That's probably not a brilliant idea. Well, and it does seem to be like an interesting thing too, where like at least the most recent kind of uptick in, like some of these like weekend 5k to marathon type events it has been this like new wave of folks who are like who are doing it as a as a as a challenge or a, <clears throat> a thing to kind of check off the box type of thing whereas when you go back to kind of the first wave of running it was like if you just look at the average finishing times they were quite a bit faster um because i think the first wave it was more people who were kind of serious as to like, I want to find out how fast I can do this in. So then they were more likely to kind of do their due diligence and preparing for that, you know, versus someone who's like, well, I, you know, my friend bet me that I couldn't run a marathon or um, my friend's running a marathon. I want to do it. And I think that's, we're going to get that situation where someone's running like 20, 30 miles a week and then showing up on Sunday for the marathon. And they're going to basically do that in, in one morning versus over the course of a week, which is going to be a pretty big stress to their body. Yeah, it's a, it's a stress. And, you know, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, Phil Maffetone talks about that, the overfat epidemic in athletes. Um, and, you know, that was one of the things that got Peter Atia going is that he was exercising crazy amounts. And, you know, he was getting, he was fatter than he thought he ought to be based on the amount of exercise he was doing. And, you know, people, I mean, I think it's great that people get out and do that stuff. Um, you know, I've, that was my motivation for running at the beginning was for the health benefits. Um, I just fell in love with it. God help me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, so I, I keep going at it and, you know, God willing, it'll, I I won't be the rare guy who dies of a heart attack in the middle of a marathon because it does happen, but it's just not very common. Hey, Tucker, speaking of, I mean, we, we brought up Gary Tiles and you probably may be aware he had a, he was on a debate recently with a guy named Stefan Guionet, uh, who's, I believe is Canadian. Uh, I, I would assume French Canadian. Uh, uh, I, th- I think he's American actually, but he's definitely French ex- extraction. Okay. But anyway, so he, uh, he published a paper, I think it was in 2015, if I'm not mistaken, showing that the omega-6 oils tend to bioaccumulate in the human tissue, particularly our fat. And, you know, it, it may take up residence for many years. And do you know, do you have any idea on how the body deals with that? Like, you know, like say, say a guy like me who no longer eats seed oils and I haven't done so for a couple of years, how long does it take the body to, and what are the mechanisms by which the body deals with it? Or, or do you know that, or is that known? Yeah. Um, that was a really cool paper he did. Uh, that actually started as a blog post of his years ago. Um, he, so basically what he showed is that um, the omega-6 fat content in, in our fat cells has gone up consistently over the years. Um, that's not particularly surprising because they've known in animal nutrition science for over a hundred years that omega-6 fats concentrate in the tissues. Um, it happens in pigs, it happens in chickens, it happens basically in any animal, what they call a monogast, which is a animal with a single stomach as opposed to a ruminant who have four stomachs. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, you know, it's very cool to show. It would have been surprising if that hadn't been the case in humans, um, actually based on the animal experience experiments. Um, 
the turnover on so basically how fast can i get rid of it is a question of turnover um your body is basically um constantly reconstructing itself um so you you today aren't you from two years ago you know your cells cells get broken down and rebuilt and obviously that's why you're eating food is to give your body you know the building blocks to rebuild yourself all the time different tissues have different um they call it a half-life right so sort of like radiation how long does it take for half the cells to get broken down and rebuilt um so different tissues have wildly variant different half-lives from um what are they like uh you know white blood cells, I think it's days. Um, red blood cells is three months, right? That's what HbA1c measures, is the turnover over the life. And then fat cells, I think I've seen numbers from nine to 14 months. And cartilage is, I think the half-life half of the cells in your cartilage is 15 years. Um, so the answer is it depends. <laughs> There's gonna be a big range. And in that process, um, if you cut your seed oil intake down, then you're going to see, you know, I, I saw changes in my sunburn susceptibility in a matter of weeks when I made that change. Um, I didn't see the last major change in my health until seven years later, and that was um, in my knees. Um, so for the fat cells, it's going to be, if you cut your omega-6 down, it's probably going to take years to clean out, you know, to get your fat cells down to what you would say is a normal level of omega-6 fats. Um, and that may be why when you see people losing weight, you know, they tend to lose weight really quickly and then it sort of tails off as time goes on. Um, everybody who's tried to do that knows that the last few pounds are always the hardest to lose. And that's because you get down to the level where your body's like, you know, well, you may want to be 150, but I want to be 155. Um, so you wind up fighting with your body over that. So, yeah, it's, it's, and I think that's kind of the important thing. You know, that's a super important thing for people to understand is that a healthy diet is a project. It's not, you know, you can't eat well for six months and then be done with it. I mean, that's how people get into the problem with yo-yo dieting. And, um, I think that's one of the things, um, you know, that those alphime studies makes really clear is that a lot of people may be having, you know, they're having trouble eating because they're eating something that is causing them to become obese, right? It's not just carbohydrates are making your insulin level go up. You're eating something that tells your brain that you're not eating enough and that you have to eat more. Because if you look back to the epidemiology, which we don't like, but it can be pretty useful sometimes. And uh, Stefan Guillenet had a bunch of posts like this. If you look at what's happened to the American diet over the last 50 years, two things have gone up. Fats, mostly seed oils, animal fats have gone down, and carbohydrate intake has gone up. And maybe the reason behind that is because we're eating a fat that turns into a chemical that tells us to eat more carbohydrates. It'd be a pretty, be a pretty clean explanation if that turns out to be it. Yeah, Tucker, just a follow-up with one of those, and this is more of a kind of kind of a interesting situational thing. If someone was looking to accelerate the that that situation of years and years of a chronically high omega-6 consumption, 
And if they wanted to essentially liberate that from their own fat, would it be much quicker for them to take on a high fat diet with uh, longer windows of intermittent fasting so that like they're catabolizing a lot of their body fat tissue and then replacing it with say animal fats rather than their previous omega-6 counterparts? Yeah, that's, that's a fantastic point. When I advise people on, um, doing on losing weight. Um, what I recommend is first fix your diet because that's the most important thing. And that's going to give you, you know, you want to stop the bleeding. You want to stop the damage you're doing because what, you know, the American diet causes what they call mitochondrial dysfunction. The mitochondria are the part are the parts of your cells that burn fat. And if you're breaking those down and doing damage to them, obviously <laughs> you're not going to be able to burn as much fat. So you want to stop that process. And then you want to um, kick your body into fat burning mode. And the way to do that is things like intermittent fasting, um, eating a better diet, eating fewer carbohydrates, because one of the things that insulin does, um, you know, if you, you know, if you haven't eaten anything and you eat some carbohydrates, the first thing that happens is insulin goes up and it tells your fat cells to stop releasing fat and to burn the glucose out of your body until it's gone. And then you can go back to eating fat. So the less you do of that, the less you tell your fat cells not to burn fat, it stands to reason that it's going to help promote your weight loss, which is I think why low carb diets are so amazingly effective compared to other things. Um, the next thing you're going to want to do is upregulate your body's ability to burn fat, right? Which means exercise. And a lot of people, it seems once they start losing weight, I wouldn't do it first because, you know, if you're going to get overweight, people have a much higher injury rate than normal weight people. And I'm reluctant to tell, you know, I mean, Jimmy Moore's talked about this. He was like, when I was 400 pounds, I couldn't exercise. He was like, it was hard just to walk across the room. And that's fair. Um, so, but when you start losing weight, you know, start walking, walk as much as you can. Um, there's, uh, you know, there's, who is it? One of the most remarkable story people I saw um, was a neighbor of mine and she was very overweight. I mean, I, I didn't know her all that well. I would just see her out walking every morning. And over the course of a couple of years, she went from probably 80, 90 pounds overweight to a stick to the point where you just literally, you know, I mean, we've all heard that story. Nobody recognized me. I lost so much weight. All she did was cut sugar out of her diet and start walking every day. Right. I mean, sugary drinks, sugary drinks, um, which will cause fat, fatness. They will increase your fatness. Everybody agrees on that. Um, but they also cause your insulin to go up. And if you're drinking them all day long and you're keeping your insulin level high through drinking sugar, your body's never going to have the opportunity to burn fat, right? And what we've seen in obese people, they actually, it can get so bad that they actually lose the ability to lose, to burn fat. And if you are, if your cells are unable to burn fat, obviously you're not going to lose fat and every extra calorie you eat is going to go right into your fat cells and stay there. Cause so you've got to open, you know, you've got to unplug the drain. You've got to, 
you've got to you've got to cut back. You've got to cut out the seed oils so that your mitochondria can repair. You've got to cut back on carbohydrates so that you're not sending your body a don't burn fat signal. And then you've got to build up your capability to burn fat, which means doing exercise like running or weightlifting or you know walking. Walking's fine. I mean, there's there's one woman in uh, seizure salad on Twitter who walks. You know, she's lost 140 pounds and walking's her main exercise. And she's gotten up to the point where she can walk, you know, 40 miles. She walks around Seattle and she's a stick now. So that's, that's absolutely the way to go. And if you wind up running later on, then that's great. But I don't think, I would never tell anybody right at the beginning to start running because I think they're going to, you know, there's a high likelihood they're going to injure, injure themselves. And that's counterproductive. Yeah, I saw that all too often. You know, when I was as a surgeon, I was I would see people. You know, January first, people go on their their weight loss venture and they they jump into some high intense exercise. And you know, you know, by February they were in there with their meniscal tear or their shoulder labral tear or their back injury, and it it just came on and on. And so yeah, I agree with that advice. Fix the diet first. You know, I think some of the structural integrity of our tissues is certainly diet dependent. You know, and I think tissue quality you know, on a high seed oil, high sugar, high refined grain diet is, is poor quality and you're, you're more likely to see injuries. And I think we see, we see that more and more in, in even our kids now. We're seeing higher rates of pediatric, uh, you know, sports injuries, which I think are probably more so diet related than they are the fact that kids are doing sports. Because I don't think kids are any more active now than they were 50 years ago, if not you know, more likely they're less active, you know, and, and, and then we try to blame it on the fact that they're participating in sports. But I mean, you know, kids run around regardless. I mean, when they're kids, right. I mean, when I was a kid, I, if I wasn't playing in sports out at, at, you know, in organized sports, I was running around the neighborhood, you know, climbing trees and jumping and doing that stuff. So I don't think that is a fair way to, to judge us. I think the diet is probably a better, you know, suspect in my view. Tucker, let me ask you um, back to, you know, because you made an interesting point that uh, in some people, the, the subtlety may be missed by some people, but you talk about monogastric animals, you know, like pigs, uh, you know, I assume chickens, although they're probably not, I'm not sure what they're, they're birds, but they don't have, you know, the difference between a ruminant animal and their ability to accumulate these omega-6 oils, because we certainly see pork and chicken have much higher amounts in their tissues, you know, regardless of their diet, whether it's well, I mean, probably more like more dependent upon their diet than, than beef cattle, which, you know, regardless of their diet, they're not going to really accumulate much either way. So I think that's an important, important concept. Well, it's a great thing, you know, to understand about cow, a cow. I mean, it's true for all ruminants, right? But let's just use cows. Um, they're not, a cow isn't eating what it puts in its mouth, which is, you know, grass and leaves and you know, a little bit of green finishing maybe later at the later in their life. What cows are eating is what the bacteria in their gut breaks those things down into, right? So a cow is actually on a low carb, high fat diet because it is eating the bacteria breaks grass down into short chain fatty acids and protein, right? That's what the cow's eating is the stuff that gets into its blood system, right? That's true for all of us, right? We're, what we're really eating is what goes into our mouth. Um, for a cow, the bacteria break down the seed oils and they actually break it down into a, a, 
uh, a related fat called CLA. You may have heard CLA has been touted as this anti-cancer anti fat. Um, well, the bad fat, according to me, is linoleic acid. CLA is conjugated linoleic acid. It's a naturally occurring trans fat, and it appears, I've seen some studies where in animal models, it seems to be beneficial because it blocks linoleic acid, right? So, you know, it's like ruminant magic. They turn this bad fat into a beneficial fat. Um, cows do have some negative effects from excess seed oils. That's typically what happens later in their lives when they go on the feedlot because they're fed a lot of, you know, they're fed stuff that cows shouldn't be eating, like a lot of corn and they use uh, soy protein and all this other stuff to fatten them up. And I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, it, it boggles the mind. So basically you put a, a cow on a feedlot, fatten it up, and what happens? It gets a lot of intramuscular fat, which is what makes Sean smile when he looks at a ribeye, right? And the USDA and the dietary guidelines tells us to eat the same stuff. And then they're surprised when we get fat and we get a lot of intramuscular fat. It's the same diet. It does the same thing to both of us. Cows just are protected from it a bit more than we are. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's painfully obvious. I mean, I think anybody that works in veterinary science understands that and we had a vet on you know a cow vet on yesterday in fact and we, we kind of oh really i can't a little about that some of that stuff out. so um tucker let me see you know just a final thing because we, we've got another podcast we got to do here in a second but um back to the the sunburn any more update on this sunburn stuff because i know a lot of you, you you piqued a lot of people's interest any more knowledge or or sort of results that would indicate that there's there's something going on there uh, well, I went out for two long runs over the weekend, which were the first, um, now that spring is here, it was my first sun exposure for the season. So I sat on a bench for probably about an hour and baked in the sun with my shirt off. And then I went out, um, for a couple more hours with my running group, um, and turned a alarmingly bright shade of pink overnight. <laughs> Or at night, I got home and looked in the mirror and was like, oh, good heavens, I've overdone it. And woke up the next morning and I was all tan, no sunburn at all. So still seems to work. Um, yeah, I've, you know, I got to do a, I got to do a post on that. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, that topic, I'd love to see some better studies than the mostly animal models. But they do have some human models where they look at, you know, what's causing the damage in human skin. And it's the same thing I've been discussing through this whole podcast. It's, you know, omega-6 fats break down into HNA. They cause uh, fibrosis and they cause cell death and they cause inflammation in your, in your skin. I mean, it's pretty cut and dried as far as I'm concerned at this point. Same thing in age-related macular degeneration. Hey, Tucker, let me just, and just one other thing, because there's people out there that are like, well, how do I know how much HNE I have? How do I know how much omega-6? I mean, there's a there's an erythrocyte test. You can look at your ratios, but again, as we know, erythrocytes are sh fairly short-lived. And so, is there any good studies out there that can can you know other tests that the average person has access to, where they can they can determine what their risk level is based on these omega six levels? I mean, one thing that interests me, and I, and and I've talked about this several years ago, and I just you know there's a, there's a, there's an autofluorescence reader out there that's designed to detect things like advanced glycation end products. In your skin, uh, that, right? that might have some clinical application in my view. I think that's something we need to look at also. But do you know if there's anything like that 
uh, for these oxidized omega-6 uh, in, the, in the tissues, you know, skin or, or what have you? Well, not in the skin. I've heard about a test like that. Um, my ex-wife and a bunch of friends went to some naturopath and they did that. And um, the naturopath was horrified that my ex-wife's skin was very low in antioxidants. Um, and she seemed to think that was a problem with her diet. Whereas knowing that antioxidants go up because you're having oxidative damage, I, I took that as being a good sign. Um, she was on a paleo diet at the time. Um, I haven't really looked into that. Um, there's the Omega index test that, uh, Dr. Harris devised, which I know a bunch of people have taken that shows you the Omega six and Omega three fat composition of your blood cells. Um, there are some oxidized LDL tests that I think, um, I don't know if they're commonly available, but you find lots of papers saying, you know, high levels of ox LDL is a, is a fantastic predictor of heart disease. Um, so that hopefully these things will start becoming a lot more common. I know Peter Atia in one of his podcasts talked about how he used uh, oxidized LDL as an indicator without getting too much into the detail. But for the skin stuff, I haven't really looked at it. I mean, for me, it changed so fast and, you know, I tested all summer. <laughs> you know, if I'm not getting burned, I'm still good to go. And then I will say that, you know, Burning less does not mean not burning. If you go out long enough, you're not Superman here. You're not like impervious to radiation. So yeah, I know about it. And I think like I, I've had some experience with that too, where like when I'm doing my, you know, normal training, you know, I might get a couple hours, two, three hours of, of direct sunlight if I get out, you know, late enough in the morning. But then if I go out and do a race and I'm out in the sun for 10, 11, 12 hours of the day, like I will be burnt the next day. Yeah, but I, right. that's just yeah, more, me too. Uh, an absurd amount of sun versus, you know, what I've been exposed to, I think. Right. But I think for most of us, you know, I mean, for me, I used to burn in 45 minutes. For me, being able to go out for four or five hours without having to use sunscreen is, you know, it's life altering. It's just mm -hmm. fantastic. Yeah. And as, as a kid, it was like, you know, clockwork, the first three sunny days of the summer would result in, you know, right. peeling, peeling skin and red as a lobster. So it's, it is a drastic difference from, from before. Yeah. I mean, for those of us who live in the temperate areas where the, there's not much sun in the winter and not much sunburn risk, you got to be smart in the spring and acclimate yourself a little bit to it. I mean, I've definitely toasted myself a couple of times by going out for too long first thing in the spring. Perfect. Well, well, Tucker, we got to we got to we got to fire up another podcast with another guest coming on. But tell us where people can find you. What you're up to? Uh, anything exciting on the horizon in the in the Tucker Goodrich uh, space? Well, I'm as you know active on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is Tucker Goodrich. Uh, my blog is Yelling Stop, um, and there's a link to that off the. It's Yelling Stop Blogspot.com, and there's a link to that on my. Uh, Twitter profile. Um, I am working on a bunch more posts on a couple of these issues, the obesity stuff, the oxidized LDL stuff, um, just to kind of explain some of these mechanisms and get the stuff out of my head. And I am doing that as sort of the mechanism to force myself to write a book. Um, I need the catharsis of writing a book to get all this stuff mm -hmm. out of my head. Spent 10 years doing all this research. I think it's time to uh, extract it all.
cool. Well, we'll definitely look forward to seeing that when it, when it comes out down the road, but thanks a bunch for coming back on. This will be a, a fun one to get up. Great to see you, Zach. Somewhat great to see you, Sean, floating next to the bottles. <laughs> yeah, yeah I've got theme-based. I've got theme-based backgrounds based on our guests, and so that's what I've been trying to do. So, so we got we got a headache specialist coming on next to next. So I got a person acting like they got a headache on there for this. But um, yeah, great, Tucker. You know, like I said, I don't know if you have an interest. You know, we're going to be rolling out this animal-based nutrition network.com. We're always looking for content. So if you have an interest in having us you know, have some of your content, relevant content on there, we'd, we'd certainly, uh, you know, potentially look forward to having, you know, something like that. So. Yeah, we'll follow up on that, follow up on that online, offline, because, uh, you know, as we've discussed on Twitter, um, the, some of the antioxidants found in beef for one of the best protectants against uh, omega-6 oxidation in the body. So there's definitely a big tie in there. Yeah, I mean, like Carn, you know, Carnison obviously is one of the huge ones that that we've seen. But cool. All right, Tucker. Well, like I said, unfortunately, we could talk for a couple hours more. I think, but we've got we we unfortunately booked a guest two hours after we started with you. So we're we're a minute, <laughs> great talking we're, to you guys again. All right, man. All right, thank you, Tucker. All right, Zach. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.